Thank you, Parker and Catherine and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Turn the Bible to Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where that is, find Proverbs as the book right after Proverbs, written by Solomon the Wise One, called Koheleth or the Preacher uh, in the book. So right after Proverbs, we have a continuation of the wisdom literature with Ecclesiastes. The title of today's sermon is, What Is It All About? What's It All About? Jerry Seinfeld in sign language says, Life truly is a ride. We're strapped in. No one can stop it. When the doctor slaps your behind, he's ripping your ticket, and away you go. And as you make each passage from youth to adulthood to maturity, sometimes you put your arms up there and scream, and sometimes you just hang on to the bar in front of you. But the ride, the ride is the thing. I think Seinfeld says the most you can hope for at the end of life is Your hair's messed up, you're out of breath, and you didn't throw up on the way. (laughs) When I was a child, I did listen to the gerbil on the wheel, and I thought, he's the dumbest thing. He doesn't realize around and around and around he goes, and well, like the kids even knew, he's not going anywhere. I guess we're all pretty much hypocrites when we judge the gerbil if we're not. I made fun of the gerbil's circular excursions as a child, all that time and effort only to end up right back where he started. But as an adult, I've discovered I'm the gerbil. How about you? Treadmill? Where am I going? Stationary bicycle, where am I going? Rowing machine, all in each case, I'm right where I started. Round and round I go, and where I stop, everyone knows just the place I began. The gerbil gerbil doesn't really look so dumb anymore to me. I guess he was right. Life goes around and around in cycles, and that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. When we're children, we ask the right questions. When we're kids, we ask why questions. Uh, The younger the child, the more likely the child is to use the word why in the sentence. You know those really hard questions like, why do birds fly? I mean, how do you answer that to a three-year-old? Why does a trash man come on Tuesday? There's a hard one in life. Why are circles round? I guess the reality is children ask the tough questions, and I suppose they never get really satisfactory answers because no one can satisfactorily answer all the why, why, why questions of a three-year-old. When we're young, we ask the really hard 
why questions. My nephew is at a church camp, and he arrived, and he thought he was going to work with 12-year-olds, and for some unknown reason to him, he was reassigned for his two weeks at camp to work with six-year-olds, and so he has a cabin full of six-year-old boys, and he has just graduated from high school, and so welcome to life, Dylan. Here we go. And so I get a phone call from my nephew. He, he never calls me. I, I wonder why Dylan's calling me. I answer the phone. And he says, you got to help me. What's wrong, Dylan? These six-year-old boys are asking me all these really hard theological questions, and I want to be sure I'm giving them the right answers. They're asking questions like, why do innocent people suffer? They're asking questions like, why don't we see miracles today like we saw miracles performed in Jesus' day? He says, and he just went on with a list of really hard questions from theodicy to miracles. And he said, and we went over each question and gave him a response. And I wanted to tell him if he'd worked with three-year-olds, he would really have been in trouble. <laughs> if you ever go to camp, work with the seniors. We've beaten them down and we've given them such poor answers that a high school senior will never ask you why. They ask you how. You see that? When we're young and inquisitive and we want to know the meaning of life and why we're here and where we're going, we ask the why question. So if you get the six-year-old boys at camp, you are in a heap of trouble, but... The older ones, not so much, not, not, not so much. We've moved in life from why to how. In fact, if you look at universities today, no one majors in the why anymore. The why is a religion major. The why is a philosophy major. And my children did it too. I'm not criticizing anyone, but we've moved over to the STEM area where we don't really care about why, we care about how, how. The big question of why are we here and what is life about and why do people, innocent people suffer and those questions seem to be too large and so nobody majors in the classic professions anymore. It's how? Barnes and Noble, their number one selling books for adults are not why books, the philosophy section. Why they got dust over there. You could blow the dust off those books. It's the how-tos like the Abacus, a brief history of the world's first computing system and how to use it by Jesse Dilson. Or I found at Barnes and Noble, Angels Speak, How to Speak to Your Angels by Barbara Mark, or I love this one, The Alien Survival Guide, How to Cope with Your E.T. Experience by Mark Davenport. And really, you ought to go get this one today. The Aladdin Factor, 
how to ask for and get everything you want. How to ask for and get everything you want. Who doesn't want that how to? Mark Victor Hansen. Perhaps you know that name. Or I could have used this one last week, all about blue crabs and how to catch them by Russell Roberts. And, well, here's a real good one. It's on sale for $4.95. How, how to dig a hole to the other side of the world by Faith McNulty and Mark Simone. Now, some of you really need this one. In fact, there's one or two of you that I may buy and give this to you for Christmas. How to Become a Sweet Old Lady Instead of a Grumpy Old Grouch by <laughs> Marilyn Carlson Weber and William D. Weber. Woo! $8.79 at Barnes & Noble. We ought to get a case of them around here. And if you're single, who doesn't want this one? How to Attract Anyone, Anytime, Anyplace. Wow. How to attract anyone, anytime, anyplace. You'll become a magnet there. The Smart Singles Guide to Flirting. There you go, by Susan Rabin. Or found an interesting one. I hope no one will buy this one. I don't recommend it. How to Be a Vampire by R.L. Stein. Here's an interesting one. How to Babysit an Orangutan by Tara Darling. You never know. You just never know. How to Babysit an Orangutan. How about this one? How to completely disappear and never be found. They're still looking for that guy who wrote that book. How to completely disappear and never be found. Another one, how to avoid huge ships. I mean, I just don't get on one. How to avoid huge ships. Oh, here's one. How to entertain the people you hate. Tips on how to have a good time in bad company. There you go. Cliff Carlisle. Uh, I found this one extremely interesting. We'll stop with this one. How to Die in the Outdoors, 100 Interesting Ways by Buck Tilton. How to Die Outdoors, 100 Interesting Ways. I wonder if he tried them all before he wrote the book. <laughs> How to Die, 100 Interesting Ways. We stop asking why. Ecclesiastes asks why. He doesn't give up. Even though he's older, he's, he's Solomon, he's an adult, he's wise. He doesn't give up on the wise. He hasn't simply moved to the hows. See how ridiculous the how-tos have become? It's because no one wants to read the why books anymore. Solomon's asking the big questions. Is life really worth living? And if it is, where is this journey taking me? And his answers are not completely satisfactory because of two reasons. First of all, Solomon views everything from a single dimension, a flat dimension. In verse 3, you'll see the words, under the sun. 29 times in this book, he uses that phrase, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, 29 times. So he views things from a limited perspective, a flat dimension of the here and now on earth under the sun. Secondly, 
His answer is not completely satisfactory because he speaks in limited terms of time. He speaks of from birth till death, from birth till death, and he doesn't ever really look beyond the grave, and so no wonder he finds futility in life. Vanity, futility, meaninglessness, mystery, enigma, absurdity, irony, brevity, unrelieved gloom. Well, look at verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The preacher's called Koheleth. Vanity of vanities, says Koheleth. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, it's a superlative expression. If the song of songs is the greatest song, and the king of kings means that someone is the greatest king, then vanity of vanities is a superlative expression used by Solomon to mean that, well, the full meaning of life really is way beyond our reach. Our, our quest for understanding, Solomon says, is marked by the worst kind of futility. The strong words of the preacher were prompted by perhaps his disagreement with the fellow wise men, the wisdom schools of his day. The other wisdom schools were teaching that one could be healthy and, and wealthy and wise and could find security and happiness and, well, Solomon's saying the other schools of wisdom are promising you more than they can produce. They were misleading their students with unrealistic dreams that they had painted. So look at verse 3. What advantage or what profit does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? He's saying in verse 3, there is no profit or advantage or accomplishment in your labor. Work doesn't ultimately make a real difference in life. We do not fully subdue the earth, despite all of our trying. We till and we rake and we water and we build our dams, we develop our lakes, we reshape the contour of the land. When the long run, the earth wins struggle. It wears us down. I was looking at an abandoned building when we were landing in a plane this week, and when you stop caring for the parking lot, the grass and the trees will grow right through it as if you'd never put the pavement there. You wash all the dishes, and then you walk into the bedroom only to find that a, a glass has escaped your purview, and besides, they'll all need washing again tomorrow. Wash your car. You go ahead and look at it in two weeks. If the rain doesn't get in around here, the sprinkler system will. 
pick up all the kids' toys and put them in the toy basket and, well, just in hours, they'll be on the floor again. You cut your grass. Go ahead. See where that gets you. It'll grow again. You can paint the house and think you're done, and then you look up in a few years and you see chips in the paint. Change the oil in the truck three months, 3,000 miles, it'll be ready to change again. It's all a treadmill. There is no profit in our labor. Around and around we go, says Koheleth, and we're not really going anywhere. The other wise men were teaching there was profit in the toll. Solomon did not teach that. What they prized, he questioned. What they valued, he called empty. Verse 4, he begins to demonstrate the futility of life. Look at verse 4. People come and people go. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. We are born and we die and others are born and then they die. One generation comes, another generation goes, and another does the same. But the earth, Solomon says, the earth remains. Man was created to subdue the earth, but man disappears and the earth has its way and remains. Death becomes a puzzle to the writer of this book throughout Ecclesiastes. In fact, in chapter 2, he says, life's just way too short because we die. He can make no sense out of life. It was like the experience of Antonio Parr and Frederick Beekner's open heart. As Antonio Parr stood at the Brooklyn graveside of his twin sister, it's written, some stirring of the air or quick movement of a squirrel or a bird brought me back to myself. And just at the instance, I knew that the self I'd been brought back to was some fine day going to be as dead as my sister, Maria. Through grace alone, I banged right into it. Not a lesson this time, but a collision. Life and death, life and death. Interestingly, when you poll Americans, they repeatedly list health at the top of their preoccupations. Health above love, health above work, health above money, health above anything else because they see health as their primary source of happiness. Why? Because if you're healthy, for a moment at least, you can forget the finality of your created frailty. Life seems so short to the preacher. Did you hear the story of the professor of economics, William Vickery? He waited 45 years. When you're really smart and you think outside the box, when you have new theories and economics and new ideas, he waited 45 years for anybody to agree with him or recognize his work. And after 45 years of waiting, he won the Nobel Prize. 
He was 82 years of age when they finally recognized his good thoughts. He enjoyed it for three days and collapsed dead in his car the third day after he learned he'd won the Nobel Prize. He's an 80-year-old retired professor at Columbia University. He'd been relishing that honor from the day he heard. He'd been having champagne parties. All the media had been interviewing him. And he said, I've got the bully pulpit. Now people will listen to me. And I got two more books I want to write. And, well, the chairman of the department said, we were afraid this was going to be too much for him. And, well, you win the Nobel Prize. You got two books to write because you win and you die three days after. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The author of Ecclesiastes saw people being born and people dying. It concludes that men come and go and all is futile. Maybe Shakespeare is right. We occupy our brief time on life stage. And then we're gone. Look at verse 5, the rhythm. Also the sun rises and the sun sets. And hasting to its place, it rises there again. Sun rise, sun set, sun rise, sun set, sun rise, sun set. It's almost the language of a runner running a race, panting to keep the pace. And in verse 6, he becomes an amateur meteorologist. Look, blowing toward the south, then blowing towards the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. Wind, it blows southward, then it turns north. If the sun gave us the east-to-west rhythm, now we have the south-to-north rhythm with the wind. And it's not just the sun and the wind that are the gerbil on the treadmill. Look at the river, verse 7. And the rivers, they flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow again, they flow again. You begin reading Ecclesiastes and feeling this rhythmic drum beat. Men come, men go, the sun keeps its course, the wind blows, it goes back, it comes again, the river goes into the sea, only to come again. Life is one boring, futile cycle, says Ecclesiastes. Why? What could it all possibly mean? This picture of creation stability against, well, the brevity of humanity is comprehensive. The four essential elements are there. Look at the earth. It's there. Look at the sun. It runs a cycle. Look at the wind. It has a pattern. Look at the water. It has a flow. It's not just the four basic elements but also of creation, but also every direction. The sun is east and west, and the wind is south and north, every direction. There's the unending dependability of the earth, which abides forever, he writes. No one can think beyond the earth's existence. The sun, which sets into the west, and it appears like it runs a race back under the earth, only to appear again. We know it's not that way, but that's the way it appears to be. 
And the wind, it swirls in predictable patterns. And then the wadis called by Arabs, the, the rivers, they flow to the sea only to fill up next year and flow all over again. Has Koheleth got you depressed yet? Feeling defeat? Overwhelmed by the meaninglessness under the sun? Solomon was. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. The eye, we see so much and we're not satisfied. We want to see more. And no matter what we hear, there are more things we want to hear. There's no end to what we see, is there? You know, now there are so many channels available on our televisions. In fact, you have to be 50 or more to still subscribe to a cable network. None of my children do. Your children don't either. So if you know the word cable, then you're old. You, that's, not what, that, that's not the way they watch TV anymore. But now there's, isn't there Netflix and Hulu and there's Amazon Prime and Disney's about to do their own thing and Apple. And it, it reminds me of rocker Bruce Springsteen's song, 57 Channels and Nothing's On. Now I would say about my television with all those various media channels, there's 10,000 channels and still there is absolutely nothing on worth watching. We see, we see, and somebody comes up with another channel. We hear and we hear, and yet, well, we find there's a whole nother branch of media on the radio. I was riding to church with my brother-in-law brother Ralph this week and got in the car and unfortunately Elvis was singing a hymn in the car as we were traveling and I thought we'll get through this and we'll move on to something else and then Elvis sang another hymn and then Elvis sang another hymn and I thought this is a strange radio cha channel it plays Elvis singing hymns and he will not stop and I finally looked on the little computer and it said the Elvis channel and I realized all the way to church and from church, I was captive to Elvis singing the hymns. How many channels could we possibly have invent if we have a radio channel dedicated to the king singing the hymns of old? All these things toll along toward their goal. Our tongue cannot describe them adequately. Our eye cannot see them clearly. Our ear cannot hear them fully. And then he says in verses 9 through 11, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, hey, see this? This is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who are still to come later. 
Everything is as everything has always been, says the preacher. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, let's challenge him. How about space travel? How about penicillin? How about the microwave? Weren't the, wasn't there a time when all those things were new? Well, not really. The elements necessary to make those occur have always been here. We just put them together in a new pattern to create a new way of looking at things that have always been here. And the seven deadly sins, are they not as deadly as they have always been? Every one of them will still kill you, won't they? And what about war? Have men learned to be less warlike or eager to kill each other? No, we just invent new ways and putting the elements together to kill each other more severely and more quickly. And surely by now there's no more greed on the planet, right? No, it's the same old thing. Leon Uris wrote a book about the history of Ireland entitled The Trinity. At the conclusion of this book, which chronicles three to four hundred years of Gaelic history, Eurus states, there is no future for Ireland, only the past happening over and over. There is no future for Ireland, after looking at 400 years of Gaelic history, only the past being played out over and over. The preacher said that any notion of novelty is an illusion based on limited perception or a faulty memory because it's all been here before. What is it all about? Some say it's all about relationships, relationships with each other. Some say it's all about service, helping others. Some say it's all about obtaining material goods. Some say it's all about work, and because of that, some of you work, and you work, and you work, and you're afraid to ever retire, and because your identity is in your work, and the first thing we ask an American is, what do you do? And some say, like Freud, it's all about pleasure. Well, sunrise, sunset, vanity, vanities. Is there a way to step off the gerbil's wheel, the treadmill, the Stairmaster. Augustine said there is. He who has God has everything, Augustine said. He who does not have God has nothing. And he who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. You see, we were never meant for circular existence. We were made for linear living. And that's where the preacher misses it here. We are created to go somewhere. We are created with purpose. When Solomon sees it as pointless, we are meant for linear living. But sin has forced us into this circular pattern. We're meant to live in relationships, but sin has pushed us to isolation. We are heirs to the magnificent history of God's revelation and God's redemption. And we are not satisfied, therefore, with Solomon's answers. He only looked under the sun and he only looked from life to death. He could not look to the past or the future. 
The deeds and words of a later and greater wise man, we realize the gospel brings us good news, that our work, though tedious, really does contribute to our life, and therefore our creator of the cosmos comes in the person of a carpenter who knew how to handle wood and how to fill orders and how to get his knuckles nicked and his fingers had blisters, and, well, the Son of God came and told with us shoulder to shoulder. And then he called us to look beyond our daily work to the larger work at hand, the work of being obedient to the Father's will and trusting the Father's power. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to everlasting life. This is the work of God, Jesus says, a wise man, that you believe in me whom God has sent. Life's meaning is to trust in Jesus to rescue us from the circle of our sin, to trust in Jesus for guidance to our lives, to trust Jesus for the power in our service. That is the work of God. When it comes to creation, we realize the creation is not futile, but it is a good thing because the creator himself of the cosmos puts on flesh and becomes one of us. And then he tells us stories about creation, like about seeds and sparrows and lilies. And we realize that the earth has a purpose, and that is that it glorifies the creator, and it is creation. And he has the power to subdue the sea. He has the power to defeat enemies. He has the power to determine creation with new creation and the power of his resurrection. What about history? Nothing new, nothing surprising, says Koheleth. That's not right. Jesus is a thing that is new. History still has its surprises, and Jesus appears, the creator himself, in human flesh form as one of us, and we have new covenants and new commandments, and new heaven and new earth are still yet to come, and Jesus enters our history to teach us we can step off the treadmill and through his death and his resurrection, and we await now his glorious return. In the myth of Sisyphus, the gods punished Sisyphus by having him roll the big boulder to the top of the mountain. And right about the time he gets to the top, it gets away from him. He can't make it. It rolls back down. And for eternity, he rolls the stone up to the top, and it rolls back down. And that's the way Solomon is feeling like Sisyphus. But, well... We feel like life is the same Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We need to remember there was a Friday that changed everything. A Friday when this happened. And then there was a Saturday and we waited to see if things really had changed And then on Sunday, we knew the cycle had been broken and things would never be the same. The tomb was empty. 
The creator was at creation again. And the one who had formed human flesh out of the dust of the earth had formed life out of death, invited us. Follow me. Step off the treadmill. Find worth in your work. Find meaning in your being. Let us pray. I know there's some folks here, oh God, who feel like life is just a big circle and they can't get off or out. They're trapped and they wonder at their own worth. And as much as I try to push the why questions below, they keep surfacing and the how-tos just won't do anymore. To those of us who have found that answer in the coming of the Christ and awaiting his return, may we realize that we are headed somewhere with someone. We have purpose and meaning. We're not just living under the S-U-N, we are living with the S-O-N. And that changes everything. Perhaps you're here today and this is your day to say yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Maybe it's your day to find a reason, a purpose for living. Maybe it's your day to be part of this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.